Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Eile and Roxana Espos, and excited to welcome Palace Shaw as our newest member. Producer, engineer, writer, welcome. We're gathered, all of us, in the spirit and memory of Malik Alim, for our seminar on freedom. That was the guitar wizard and freedom fighter, Tom Morello, with his signature anthem, Let Freedom Ring. Tommy's generosity and commitment to peace and justice is legendary. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom. Tom's book, Whatever It Takes, tracks his lifelong journey as an artist, an organizer, and an activist. The book is both illuminating and rousing. Get it at tommorellobook.com. One word, tommorellobook.com. Before we go any further, I want to note that this is the one-year anniversary of the terrible accident that took the life of our friend and comrade, the freedom fighter Malik Alim. We spent a day together up at Fox Lake, the very site where Malik was killed, with Christiana Ray Cologne, his partner, um, his brother-in-law, Damon Williams, um, the family, and we remembered Malik. Uh, it was moving and difficult and inspiring. Christiana had organized it as a as a retreat. Um, she called it a collective wellness, grief, and healing retreat, and it really was quite moving and quite healing. Uh, We went around the circle many times and told memories, gathered inspiration from each other and from remembering Malik, and we were at the very site in the water where Malik lost his life. You know, none of us really needed a reminder, um, certainly Malik didn't, that life is short, that life is fragile, that we're here in our little crack of light between two infinities of darkness. And the question is, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with this moment in the sun? And for Malik, while life is short, um, it was also full. He lived it fully. He lived it fiercely. And he had purpose, and he had full attention. He got up each morning, took care of the kids, connected with friends, did his good work, and loved his family and community fiercely. This is what he did every day. It's the kind of ordinary, gritty work of day-to-day living. And Malik lived it, I would say, inspirationally for me. So when we were in the circle, there were people who Malik known in high school. There were people from college days. There were many, many people from the community and, of course, from his extended family. I was remembering while we were there because everyone had incredible memories of Malik. And I was remembering uh, being at LaGuardia Airport in June this year, wearing my T-shirt, which has a picture of Malik on it, and a young white woman coming up to me in the concourse and saying, how did you know Malik? 
And I said, well, he was my friend. How did you know him? She said, I knew him in college. And it was just astonishing. You know, here we are many years out of college. And she, a perfect stranger in New York City. Um, and we had that bond. So the weekend was meaningful for us. Um, and we marked the anniversary of his passing. And we remind ourselves that he lives on in us and in what we do now. Our first regular feature is a moment of Zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem. This is Palace, and today I'm reading Still I Rise by Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken? Bowed heads and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries. Does my haughtiness offend you? Don't you take it awful hard? Because I laugh like I've got gold mines digging in my own backyard. You may shoot me with your words, and you may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Does my sexiness upset you? Does it come as a surprise? That I dance like I've got diamonds at the meeting of my thighs. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean, leaping and wide. Welling and swelling, I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise. I rise. I rise. Our second regular feature is a free write, where you can pause the podcast for a bit and write wildly on this prompt. Describe the promise as well as the precariousness the hope as well as the fear of this precise time we're living through. How will you, as well as your friends and neighbors, your colleagues and your comrades, continue to say with confidence and power, but still, I'll rise? Okay, we'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. Welcome back. It's time for our segment, Artists, Authors, Activists, and Academics After Hours, which I like to pronounce as a sigh. Ah... I'm here with Heather Booth, longtime civil rights feminist, peace and justice activist, a model community organizer and political strategist. Heather, it's so great to see you. And Bill, it is uh, great to be on this call. And also I see Bernadine Dorn and Roxana. Yeah, Roxana Espos and Bernadine are with us. Um, but it really is a thrill to be able to talk to you. We we go back a long ways to 1964, 65. Um, but you're one of the people who I think inspires generation after generation because you keep at it. And while I'd love to delve into the history at great length, I think I want to start by 
doing what we often do on this podcast, which is trying to name this political moment. Here we are with uh, all the madness in Washington, with the Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court moving us backwards as rapidly as they can. I wonder how you see this political moment and what is to be done now? I think we're on a knife's edge, a knife's edge. On the one hand, there really is a threat of tyranny, but there's also a chance for even greater opportunity and greater democracy. And sometimes it's the moments of the greatest challenge in which you can make the greatest progress, but only when people organize. Nothing happens automatically. The great Dr. King quote of the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. It only bends when we put our hands, our hearts, our spirits into into doing the bending. And the tyranny is certainly a real threat. Uh, Perhaps the greatest I've ever seen in my lifetime, in fact, greater than I honestly could have imagined um, that would happen in the US for perhaps naive reasons. But we see the threat not only on uh, with the Supreme Court actions of rolling back this most intimate freedom of a person's life, the decision about when or whether or with whom we have a child. It's the decisions on on guns in the streets. Should there be assault weapons, AK-47s, where the overwhelming majority of the American public doesn't think this should be there. So it's not responding to what people think about money and politics and this criminal attack on our country by people who knew they lost the election Mm. in attacking the country in order to overturn an election that they knew they lost. Right. And also it's just the rise of hatred. So there's, So in this moment, there is this threat nationally, state by state and locally for real authoritarian rule, uh, division, uh, racist driven hatred. Hmm. On the other hand, there really is a promise of even greater democracy. And we see that because the vast majority of this country are with us on, as I mentioned, on guns, uh, on sensible gun laws, on uh, women's reproductive freedom, on uh, should there be caring amongst people? Should there be a pathway to citizenship for the young people who've come to the country, uh, the DACA recipients? On one issue after another, um, not only is the vast majority of the American public with us, but we've also shown that we are producing for the American public. This most recent bill that just got passed that I think President uh, Biden is going to sign today, this now called the Inflation Reduction Act uh, to address people's concerns about inflation. It means that there will be negotiated prices on the cost of prescription drugs. Seniors won't spend more than $2,000 a year. I'm actually saving my receipts now. it means this, the most historic investment in climate. We've still got much further to go say, on so right. many issues. Right. But so, Bill, when you ask where I think we are, I think we're on a knife's edge. And for the people who are listening, we 
can make the difference if we organize. I think that is a, a, a perfect image, the knife's edge and the, the opportunity versus the threat. And uh, I agree with you. The opportunity, you think of 26 million people coming out against racism in the streets after George Floyd. You think of women rallying after the Dobbs decision. It's a very exciting time and a very fraught and difficult time. But I want to go back to, you said, only organizing can push us in the right direction, only organizing. And for me, you have always stood as kind of a, a model of what community organizing can be. And I worry sometimes that the folks we work with don't know. I mean, they know what it means to have an internet campaign, or, but I, I really wish you would go back and talk a bit, of, maybe about your own history, certainly with the Midwest Academy, but Really, what is organizing one-on-one? How should people think when we say we have to organize? What does that mean? First, I'd say there are, and I appreciate the question, there's a wide range of things that need to be done. I call it organizing because that's building the power of people coming together for a shared goal and driving for change. That's what organizing is. But there are many ways people can support it, like the work you do with teaching, teaching a next generation, what Bernadine's done with her legal background, or uh, the cultural work people do, the service work people do, the electoral work people do. There's so many things we can do as long as it's in the service of building the power and the self-confidence of people to make change together. Um, there are really three principles of organizing we teach at the training center I had started, Midwest Academy, based in Chicago. And those interested, uh, the Academy website is www.midwestacademy.com. Um, the three principles is that based on our values, and by the way, everything has to start with values. There's a moral reason for doing what we're doing or really why do it. So based on our values, number one, you actually want to improve people's lives, provide more money in your pocket, air you can breathe, feel safer when you walk down the street. That it's not just an abstraction, this fighting for change of democracy and justice is as important as that is. The second is that you give people a sense of their own power, that they're the people who are winning this change, this democracy and justice, this uh, greater access in the world. And that's the direct action component. And the third is a structural reform, that we change the relations of power. And we do that both by building our organization so that we are powerful, whether we win or lose a specific fight, that we are more confident, that we have changed, that we have come together and will be more powerful for the the fights ahead. It also means holding those in power more accountable and getting structural reforms, which we try and get while we're trying to win whatever advances we can make. So just as an example, um, cameras on police, that is definitely an important reform. And it's opened up the eyes of the world to what's going on. But having a... um, a DA who represents people, having who's accountable to people, having a, uh, a community review board of the police budgets, 
those are structural reforms. It's why a union contract is a structural reform uh, and legal guarantees can be more of a structural reform. But those are the three principles. So based on our values, winning improvements in people's lives, giving people a sense of their own power and changing the relations of power. Yeah, I think those are really useful when you think of them woven together. I think sometimes in the heat of a campaign, we lose track of the need to keep changing, to to keep our eye on our moral principles. What is underneath this? Why are we fighting for the right to vote? It's more than just some technical thing. And the thing you say about structure is hugely important to me. I think that one of the things I think the right wing has done you know, remarkably in the last little while is you need to both mobilize masses of people and you need to walk on two legs. One leg is real politics, changing structures, changing laws. And I think you've been able to do that two, two step, uh, uh, you know, walking. And I think that's what we need across the board. Going back to this question of organizing, what about this question in communities of knocking on doors? For example, in Chicago, we had a phenomenal campaign to stop the building of a police academy, and people knocked on doors. And among the things they did is they had a list of 10 items, and they said, if you had $95 million, what would you spend it on for the city? Would it be schools, mental health clinics, a police academy? The police academy came in last, you know, and yet that's what Rahm Emanuel was going to build. So what about knocking on doors? How do you see that as part of this mobilization? You know, a friend of mine, Cy Khan, a wonderful uh, movement troubadour um, and organizer, uh, wrote a song once that said, every door opens a door to the future. And it's a song about the importance of canvassing, about going door to door, having real conversations with people, but right. not, not just superficial ones of saying, it's election day, <laughs> here I am, <laughs> I need your vote, but saying, what are the concerns you have? Oh, those concerns, well, we share those concerns. Here we could do something about it. Would you want to join in with us? So it's having a relationship um, with the people at the doors face-to-face Nothing substitutes for that. Nothing is as powerful. Now, there are other things that we may use in organizing. Certainly, the Internet's been an enormous help with getting information out faster, broader, uh, more immediate with a response. But it doesn't have the kind of intimacy and it doesn't build the kind of confidence that so many times the Internet drags people down. So we want to use modern techniques, but we also need to know we need to gather with people in house meetings, in community gatherings, as well as the modern techniques. And that is really smart organizing. I agree with you. And I I also think it's good for us. In other words, the organizer learns from the people, just as a teacher learns from her students. You learn if you talk to strangers you learn important things about the weaknesses of your own argument, how to be more persuasive, nuances in terms of the values that we're fighting for. I think that's uh, it's a two-way street. Talking to strangers is good for you, and it's good for others. And uh, the stories of what happens to people when there is this personal contact, 
two different stories. One, one of the ways that this kind of more intensive canvassing was initiated was around uh, marriage equality, that there were uh, years when the ballot measures on marriage equality were just going down. There were, I think, at least five in one year that were lost, 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 lost. And then they went door to door with a video camera and asked people, could we interview you to see how you voted, what your interest is, what you think about the issue? And if people gave permission, they videotaped it so they could see what actually happened in that door-to-door exchange. And first, the person at the door would say their story mm-hmm. about a cousin, a friend, what life is like, how they couldn't see a loved one when they were dying or sick because they weren't related by marriage. This was before mar- there was same-sex marriage allowed. You couldn't marry the people you love. and so there were other limitations people faced. And then they would stop telling their story for just a minute or two and ask the other person, have you ever faced something like this? (laughs) And then wait. And even someone who voted against marriage equality might pause and say, you know, I once was really attacked at my workplace. People were so mean to me. I did feel alone. I didn't have anyone to go to. I can relate to your story. And then there's a conversation back and forth. Mm -hmm. And they found that people changed how they would have voted and did change how they voted. And the canvassers also learned that the way to talk about it was about the questions of love. And what does it mean to love someone? And so I people changed. And, and I became, over time, I think you may know, I was the coordinator of the marriage equality campaign right. nationally. And But that's one story about how canvassing changes views. I'll give just one other story. And that is a woman named Doreen Del Bianco in uh, Connecticut many years ago was a, a white working class woman who found her uh, utility rates were just going up and she couldn't afford them. And she lived in an all white neighborhood and actually didn't really know a lot of people who were people of color, um, probably scared of them. And they knocked on the door. She joined the fight because she wanted lower utility rates that were exorbitant and didn't need to be as high. She became active in the organization. She realized that they only won because black, brown, and white people all worked together. And that on working together, it changed her views as she came to see people individually and not just as an abstraction. She became a union organizer and a great community leader for racial, social, and economic justice. So yes, we're all changed. Yeah. It brings me back, your story brings me back to organizing against the war in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, I had gotten fairly used to big demonstrations, used to even being arrested, and that became fairly routine for me. The hardest thing for me to do, and the most important thing in some ways, was knocking on doors and canvassing against the war. And there were two things about it. One is, I couldn't be self-righteous 
door to door. I couldn't feel, wow, look at me. I did this demonstration. I'm making a difference. I actually had to engage on a, on a ground level. That was very good for me as a, as an organizer and as a, as an activist. And, and I think it does that. I want to bring Bernadine in. You had something you wanted to add, Bernadine? Well, I, I just following what Heather said, um, I just want to mention the international scope of this because countries as unlikely to uh, come around to women's right to control our own bodies as Ireland and Argentina had these kind of campaigns, door-to-door campaigns, and really mobilizing women of all ages to uh, come together and and defy the odds of the the powers that be that made it so unlikely this that these countries and these cultures uh, would change around it. And so I feel like there are examples from our own history which are important, and also these global movements, <laughs> we seem to be going the opposite way of the rest of the world and in these unlikely places. But you want to note that they did that sitting down inside people's houses, if possible, but at workplaces and it, in social gatherings and sports events. And they changed the whole country's view of this. Incredible. It's so true. And, and we can learn from others and they can learn from us. And then we see but also we have in common. It's it's one of the reasons, it's the main reason why the Kansas vote um, that allowed for continuation of reproductive options for those who are pregnant um, was possible in Kansas, in Kansas because there were door-to-door, gap, door-to-door conversations, but also there were potluck dinners, there were parties, there were events around sports events and talking to all kinds of people. Um, And also knowing that we have to do this caring about each other. It's not just trying to sell. We're not the salesmen or saleswomen. We're trying to develop a relationship. And so it's why the two phrases that I often use are we need to organize, but with love at the center. And when I was, um, you know, I was the um, progressive and seniors outreach director for the Biden campaign. And I had about oh, maybe 8,000 volunteers in my unit. And I had about 250 who worked virtually full time for months, full time, about 250. And so for them, each night I'd give a little briefing and uh, I'd end with saying we need to organize with love at the center. And though those on the podcast won't see it, I made buttons for those 250. And one says, organize, and one says, love at the center. Love it. Those are beautiful. And it reminds me of Ai-Jen Poo, who has a similar kind of um, thought process in terms of organizing domestic workers, and I think has done a marvelous job in that regard. You know, something about Ai-Jen, who's fabulous. And the National Domestic Workers Alliance is one of the great organizations in this country. Um, And two of the senior staff for the National Domestic Workers Alliance are now on the staff of Midwest Academy. And the new co-director, Yomara, uh, who had been a senior staffer, uh, vice president, I think, of um, National Domestic Workers Alliance, is now coming on in September as the co-director 
uh, with Eric Zachary of the uh, Midwest Academy. So one organization builds another. You yeah. need to approach this all in a non-factional way, non-sectarian right. way. It's right. not that you're doing well harms me, but you're doing well makes me better and I can learn from you and we can build together. You know, we had a, a couple of the authors of Abolition Feminism Now, um, Angela Davis, Gina Dent, Erica Miners, and Beth Ritchie were on, and they were making this point very, very eloquently. And if people haven't read that book, the last chapter is about building a campaign that leads to the next campaign, and you simply don't know. Like teaching, you're, you're planting seeds, you're not sure what's going to happen next, but you approach it with faith. And if you organize with values and keep love at the center, as Heather says, I think that's uh, that's key. But since we've gotten onto this particular issue, I would like to look backward for a moment and talk a little bit about the Janes. We can't do it justice in this short time. And there are documentary films, and um, but you are one of the founders of the Janes. And maybe you'd say a word about that campaign and that organization. Well, it actually starts in the civil rights movement. I know, yes. <laughs> Um, I had been in the civil rights movement starting in 1960 when I worked with CORE, the Congress on Racial Equality, against uh, the discrimination by uh, where African-Americans weren't allowed to sit at lunch counters in the South. And so I joined in support of that. And then in 1964, went to Mississippi with the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project and saw firsthand that when you organize based on our values and stand with moral courage or sit as we are able yeah. with moral courage, you can change the world. And also that we need to stand up to illegitimate authority. I came back to Chicago where I was going to college in 1965. And a friend of mine said his sister was pregnant and nearly suicidal and not ready to have a child and wanted an abortion and asked if I could help. And I hadn't, I don't remember thinking about the issue before. Um, it was a much more innocent time. I barely spoke to, about sex to anyone <laughs> other than my closest friends. Um, but I said I would try to help really as a good deed. And I contacted the Medical Committee for Human Rights. I contacted Quentin Young was the head of it uh, in Chicago. And he led me to Dr. T.R.M. Howard, who had been a courageous civil rights leader in Mississippi till his name was on a Klan death list. He came to Chicago, and though I didn't know it at the time, he set up a clinic on 63rd Street, a friendship clinic. And he provided the procedure, and I thought that was that. I thought I had done one good deed and didn't really think much more about it. But it was successful and word spread and someone else called. I made that arrangement and then someone else called. And I realized I better set up a system. That's what an organizer does. Mm -hmm. Think of it not just as individual acts, but how can we build this for others? I found out what was involved. We negotiated on the price. We negotiated on what was involved in the arrangements. Now, this was a time when three people talking about abortion in Chicago would have been a conspiracy to commit a felony. 
I don't think I quite knew what was involved, but I knew it wasn't legal. So we didn't discuss it publicly. Um, over time, more and more people came through. Dr. Howard left and uh, another person was providing the procedures, Mike. And I recruited others to the system. And because it wasn't legal, we said people should call and ask for Jane. And the even posted some ads that said, pregnant, don't want to be, call Jane. And between 1965 and 1973, the women of Jane themselves learned how and performed over 11,000 abortions. And because people also organized, in addition to providing that service, we were able to elect people who could nominate those judges who actually knew what justice was and make Roe the law of the land that reflected the will over almost 80% of the country believed that Roe shouldn't be overturned. And we should realize just how many people are impacted by it. Right after Roe, there were one third of people who were pregnant would have an abortion. The numbers then with more uh, contraceptive advice and also with the uh, bans in different states, the numbers became one in four and now it's one in five. But just imagine if it's one in five, that means it could be your sister, your friend, your cousin. It could be you. And so the country should reflect what people need for their lives and this most intimate decision. And we need to approach it with organizing, with support for the people involved, and always with love at the center. Where do we go from here on the Dobbs decision? I mean, I love the Kansas decision. We participated in three demonstrations um, spirited, youth-led, uh, marvelous demonstrations in Chicago, and that's been happening nationally. What is your outlook? Where, where do you see us going? And how do we put love at the center in this particular issue? There's so many things that we can do and that are being done, and we need to up our game. We certainly need to provide support for those centers, and I understand there'll be actions now um, uh, you described that on August 27th, the day after uh, August 26th, which is the day uh, that women got the right to vote. So August 27th, the next day, I understand there are calls for 500 demonstrations around the country. And uh, they, in Illinois, I think you're going to be, Roxana had said she's, uh, they're raising funds for the Chicago Abortion Fund for Midwest Abortion Access. And also I want to encourage that in addition to supporting the centers, the places where people are providing this humane and caring support for people in need, that we also take action and fund groups like Personal PAC or Planned Parenthood or Illinois uh, Citizen Action, Citizen Action of Illinois, and other groups that are driving this issue forward. And also support the candidates because now on this knife's edge that I started talking about, between tyranny and democracy, between the promise of an even better future with much further to go, and dragging us back into ages that we, we never thought we would have to face in the past. 
that we can make a difference in this election. Right now, the tide is turning in part because of the tyranny that's being threatened and people realize the threat and are responding, especially on the question of reproductive freedom, but also on issues of this attack on our country and the criminal actions of an extremist MAGA Republican uh, effort. And now there are six key Senate races. We just need to pick up two seats in the Senate and hold those that we already have for a pro-choice, pro-reproductive freedom majority, and really a pro-democracy majority. We have further to go, but just two seats in the Senate. And I don't know if your listeners want to know where those seats are, because there are other reasons that matter. But in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, in Wisconsin, New Hampshire, and Nevada, are the most marginal of those seats. And Florida and North Carolina and Ohio, and things can change. That's just what it is as as of today. But each day, our strength is growing. So we need those two senators, and then we can overturn the filibuster. It's just changed by a rule in the Senate, which can be overturned by 50 plus one votes, which we would have with two more senators. And we can change things like uh, sensible gun laws, uh, more action on climate, on student debt, on so many other issues in a caring society. But we also have to look out for the governors. There are key governor races, state and local races, district attorney races, attorney attorney general races. And so all of it together, the organizing, the service, the elections, and back again in a virtuous cycle. And one of the things that I think we share is a kind of uh, a choice to be hopeful, to have a politics of hope. And I think that's a hugely important um, important shared value. But I want to just point to one thing. I believe the first time you were arrested, I think the last time you were arrested was a couple of years ago, uh, in, you know, demonstrations, civil rights um, union demonstrations. I think you were first arrested in either 1964 or 65. And our fight then was a fight for voting rights, among other things, integration. Voting rights have been under sustained attack for the last several decades. Where are we on, on the right to vote? And what is to be done? The first arrest, I was 18 years old in Bolivar County, Mississippi, holding a sign saying, Freedom Now, in support of African-Americans who are trying to register to vote. There you are. We were arrested. It wasn't even an act of civil disobedience. <laughs> we were arrested um, in order to stop the registration drive. Exactly. But it led to transformational change. And within a year, there was a Voting Rights Act that provided federal protection for those actions. But it only happened because people organize based on our moral values and with love at the center. By the way, there were so many other, I've I've had other acts of civil disobedience, one against the war in Vietnam, one for strikers in Pittston. I remember. Mine workers, immigration reform. There were several when I was a senior advisor to the immigration reform campaigns. Uh, And I think the most recent was with Jane Fonda when she was doing the fire drill Fridays on climate. 
but there have been others. That's one tactic. By the way, I do want to emphasize that the militancy of our action and the risk of an action is not the test of its effectiveness. It may be what's effective, but it may not be. And in fact, our one key question is, does it actually change the power relations? Does it build our power? Does it make those in power really weaker? Does it recruit people to want to be with us? Or does it frighten people off? Right. And so organizing is about addition. And where you say being agents about hope, I think we need to be agents of hope. And you asked about voting rights now. These same two seats that if we change in the Senate and add two more who believe in voting rights, we will pass those voting rights bills that now have full support of the Democrats in the House and the Senate. But we have to also change this filibuster bill, mm-hmm. filibuster rule. And to change that, we need to hold those we have who are for us on the substance. But we have to change this rule with two more senators. It's why it's so close and we can make the difference mm-hmm. if we organize. You know, I think the the point you make about how we judge our actions, it's never a question of how militant we were or how uh, how we looked on television. It's always a question. I've always put it in terms of pedagogy. There's a pedagogical standard. Did I teach? Did I learn? If I didn't teach anything, but I looked great on TV, that means nothing. Um, you have to teach and you have to learn. Listen, we are about out of time, Heather, but maybe just a quick word. This is a seminar on freedom. You've been a freedom fighter for decades. What is your take on the very complicated, layered, complex concept of freedom? What have you been fighting for? There's a song in the civil rights movement that said, freedom is a constant struggle. Oh, Lord, I've struggled so long. We must be free. We must be free. It's such a precious value. It means that people have the opportunity to have the lives we wish to have. And we can build the world we wish to have. But only when we come together and organize with love at the center. So, Bill, thanks so much for this podcast. I've told you before, my, my son, Gene Booth, has been inspired by you. He's a public school teacher in Chicago for well over 20 years. Thank you so much. Such a difference in his life. I thank you for that. And I thank you also for being a long distance runner in the movement for freedom. Well, Heather Booth, I can't thank you enough for joining us. You have been an inspiration to hundreds of thousands over many, many years, and you are an inspiration to us. Thank you very much. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast Ergo. To my co-conspirators, Light Eilee, Roxana Espos, and Palace Shaw for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and always aspire to live your life with love at the center. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, 
Until next time. Let freedom ring.